So, good morning. Welcome to those joining us from the ether. I'm going to speak about ether a little later. Uh, the god of ether, or the ether. Ether was a, a Greek god, the god of the, the upper levels of the sky. Um, does anybody have any uh, haikus they'd like to share as we begin the day? Oh, we had a, a burst of creativity, but it seems to have run out. Okay, we didn't receive any by email. No, no. Not yet. Oh, yeah. Maybe from Queensland. Okay, all right. Good. Well, uh, this is a rather special day for our community because it's today that we're signing, <coughs> signing the first um, uh, legal uh, commitment to um, purchase our new centre in France, Bombeau. Um, we hope that uh, the deal will be complete and we'll take ownership uh, in uh, maybe two or three months and uh, then the fun begins and the work begins. Uh, but it's a special moment for us today, so I ask you to keep uh, Bombeau in your, in your hearts. It's a beautiful uh, centre in, uh, in near Poitiers in France, it's sort of in the middle of France, about two hours south of Paris. And um, when we first uh, visited it uh, about a year ago, I suppose, we were very struck by the spirit of the place and um, the special kind of contemplative energy that it has, and uh, we weren't surprised to discover that it had been originally a 12th century monastery, uh, up from uh, the 12th century until the uh, French Revolution, uh, Benedictine monastery at the beginning and then a Cistercian one. So, uh, so we felt a strong connection with it and everyone who's been to see it and or even looked about it or read about it um, has felt that it's very much the place where we should be. So um, if you're interested, you can look at the uh, website, the Bombo, WCCM Bombo website. It tells you about it and how you can participate in the vision. Uh, so keep it, let's keep it in our prayer and in our hearts today. So we've been looking at uh, the meaning of silence and solitude, which are essential elements of the contemplative consciousness and contemplative prayer. We practice silence and we enter into solitude um, every time we meditate. So we shouldn't think of these only as uh, specialized uh, spiritual um, qualities, you know, demanding total withdrawal from the world or living in the forest or in a cave or in a monastery. These are essential to our human capacity for contemplation. It's a universal need, in fact. And if we repress or become ignorant of this aspect of our being, the contemplative dimension, uh, we can't come to the wholeness, the integration, the health that uh, we, we need and we long for, and which is the meaning of holiness, in fact. That's why we feel that it's very important that we teach this contemplative dimension to children, that it should be part of our education. And it's, uh, it's really probably one of the reasons why our Western culture is so unbalanced and so dysfunctional, that uh, we've, we've neglected to allow children to maintain this contemplative dimension, which we're all born with, and which children have very naturally and very joyfully. We tend to make it a bit more solemn as we get older, but children have a natural, spontaneous, contemplative spirit. Uh, but of course, it gets overlaid by the problems of life, um, and, uh, and even our way of education is often very um, 
uh, resistant to encouraging this contemplative dimension to flourish. So we've been looking at these qualities of silence and solitude, which are essential to the contemplative experience. We've been looking at them through the uh, certain passages in the Gospel, in the life of Jesus, which uh, show him uh, practicing them. But Jesus is, of course, a contemplative teacher. If we look at his teaching on prayer, we see that he, he, he teaches contemplation. He doesn't teach ritual. He warns us against ritual. Uh, you can get hung up and over-invested in ritual and externals. He warns us against that. He doesn't say we shouldn't uh, pray in these ways, but he warns us against stopping at that level of prayer. And when he speaks about prayer, he clearly unfolds the essential contemplative elements. He tells us to go into our inner room, which is our interiority. Oh, that was a, hope that was a good, hope that was a good sign. <laughs> a, a picture, a picture just fell off the wall. <laughs> hope it wasn't a picture of any of us. That would be a very bad sign. Um, so interiority. Then he tells us, uh, don't go babbling on when you pray, thinking that you have to tell God everything you need, because actually, if God is God, then God knows. So silence is a sign of this, uh, of this pure prayer that he's speaking about. Uh, and let go of your worries and anxieties. We often just rehearse and repeat our problems and anxieties during prayer time. And he says we are capable of letting go of them, of laying them aside. Meditation doesn't solve your problems, but it does en enable us to come back to those problems in a very different way, with a different insight and perspective, which <laughs> makes it much easier to deal with them. And then he tells us, uh, be in... Be attentive, be mindful, set your mind on God's kingdom, prioritize where you place your attention, develop this gift of attention, which is also at the heart of prayer and the meaning of contemplation. Attention is the, uh, the deciding factor in all our relationships. How well, how deeply, generously are we paying attention to the people we're living with? Are we just paying attention to the way they impact on us or our way of trying to control them? Or are we really paying attention to them as to another? So pay, paying attention is the heart of prayer. You could even say it is the, it, it is the meaning of prayer. And because it is the the essence of all relationship, mutual attention. And then he tells us, um, again, this is all in the Sermon on the Mount, he tells us when you pray, don't be worrying about tomorrow. Tomorrow will have its own problems and the problems you think are going to be there tomorrow may not be there and you'll have a whole set of other problems you didn't imagine. So be in the present moment. So if we take these essential teachings of Jesus on prayer, it's not difficult to see that he's, he's presenting a contemplative understanding and he's asking us to pray in this way. He's a contemplative teacher. Now, we've often uh, overlooked this rather important aspect of his teaching as a, as a teacher. He's called teacher more often by, than by any other name in the Gospels. And we've concentrated on Jesus as a moralist. Jesus is telling us uh, to do this or not do that. In fact, his moral teaching can be summed up. He simplified it to its absolute radical uh, fundamentals, and that was love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And that's it. He has a morality of love. So it's, yet we've built uh, a huge uh, 
moral um, image of Jesus as if uh, which we've then onto which we've then projected our own particular moral ideas or prejudices from day to day, uh, from, e from era to era. Uh, our morality changes. We, we hold different views on many issues today, culturally, sexually, than we did even 50 years ago, certainly 500 years ago. And uh, yet we, we sort of attribute these um, these ideas and these moral opinions, not that they're unimportant, we are moral beings, but we attribute these particular beliefs, what is right and what is wrong, onto Jesus. So we, 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 we argue, or many people argue, that you know, Jesus would not approve of this or that. Well, Jesus doesn't get into this or that very much what he points to is the deep essence of our relationship to God, to our, each other, and to ourselves. This is why we could need to see him primarily as a spiritual teacher, as a contemplative teacher. So we've been looking at um, different moments in the life of Jesus leading up to the story of uh, of Holy Week and the Passion, uh, and using these particular moments to reflect on the uh, on the meaning of silence and solitude, the meaning of contemplation, and the one this morning I'd like to remind you about is um, when Jesus uh, hears about the death of John the Baptist. I'm sure that I've got my thing marked here. Mm. Sorry. Uh, well, it's gone. I lost it. Sorry, I had it here. Well, but he... Anyway, Jesus was... Uh, I won't waste your time looking for it now. Uh, lose it. Yes. So it's in Matthew chapter 14. And it tells the story, uh, begins with telling the story of the death of John the Baptist, you know, Herod and Salome. And uh, then Jesus, John's disciples came and took away the body and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. Remember, it was John who baptized Jesus, who uh, recognized uh, Jesus and who um, was his precursor, his, his prophet who prepared his way, who told his disciples to follow Jesus. So we don't know any more about that relationship. Um, there seems to have been some competition maybe even between the disciples of John and disciples of Jesus, but uh, we don't see that so much in the Gospels. But uh, clearly, Jesus regarded John as, uh, in the highest terms, as the last of the, of the prophets of the Old Covenant. And the, 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 cutting, you know, the, the cutting edge or the turning point, the watershed between the old and the new dispensations. So he uh, would have been clearly, deeply, affected by the news that the disciples of John brought, that he had been um, executed. When he heard what had happened, Jesus withdrew privately by boat to a lonely place. That's all. And then we're told, but people heard of it and came after him in crowds by land from the towns. Interesting uh, phenomenon of solitude is, is that it becomes popular. The desert monks 
uh, in the th third, fourth centuries, withdrew into the desert uh, to get away from the crowds. But when people heard about them, they wanted to visit them. There's something about solitude that is attractive. And it suggests that solitude and community are not as opposed as we may think. The two sides of the same coin. In the same way, if one person starts to meditate and they just say, I'm meditating here uh, every Tuesday night at 8 o'clock, uh, it won't be long before one or two others begin to join. It may not be a large group, but almost inevitably a group will form. It requires someone to kick it off, to start it, and to be faithful to the time and the place. Uh, but uh, a group nearly always develops when one person goes into the desert and says, I'm here, come if you like. And um, so we see this phenomenon uh, many times uh, in the Gospels where Jesus is uh, withdrawing for his own reasons into the desert to take time of si silence or solitude and that the people are attracted uh, to follow him. So um, what is he feeling at this time? Clearly he's feeling some grief and uh, anxiety about the future, perhaps. It doesn't specify what emotional state he's in, but we can't help but assume that he's mourning. And he's taking the time and the space that we all need to mourn. Happy are those who mourn, he said in the uh, Beatitudes. Happy are those who mourn because they shall be comforted. Meaning perhaps that we can't be comforted unless we mourn. There's always a temptation when we're faced with painful emotions or painful realities to push them away, to suppress them, to deny them, or to assume that they have been dealt with more quickly or thoroughly than they actually have. We don't give ourselves the time or the space to mourn because it is painful or because we're frightened of where it may take us. But there's nothing more harmful to our inner environment than the inability to mourn. It creates block blocks and complexities within us and the whole web of denial or of um, escape, evasion, that uh, uses up uh, a great deal of our psychic energy. When we receive a, a, a bad news, it, it is the psychic equivalent of being knocked over by a bus suffering a physical blow. It's maybe invisible uh, externally, but it's a very real concussion or bruising or laceration uh, inside. It breaks our heart in the worst, in the worst uh, scenarios. So a trauma of this kind it happens inevitably at various points in our lives and it's a trauma that can arrest or freeze our inner life. Just as if you're crossing the road and you're knocked over 
Well, it stops you in your tracks. And in some way, any deep trauma, sometimes even pre-conscious traumas, can do the same. And the only thing that restarts the inner life is taking the time and the space. It's essential that we take the time and the space to mourn, to grieve. In uh, the second letter to the Corinthians, St. Paul uh, addresses this question of how we suffer. There are different ways in which we suffer. what he says. Uh, he's talking about the, uh, he's writing to the Corinthians and he uh, seems to have upset them, wounded them, he said, by some, something he'd written to them before. He says, but even if I did wound you by the letter I sent, I do not now regret it. I may have been sorry for it when I saw that the letter had caused you pain even if only for a time, but now I'm happy. Not that your feelings were wounded, but that the wound led to a change of heart. You bore this pain as God would have you bear it, and so you are no losers by what we did. So as he's saying, well, I really upset you and I didn't want to cause you pain, but I'm glad that it worked out as it did because you're better for it. Well, he's being very open about this, probably not maybe what uh, we would normally say to some, somebody that, whom we've hurt or offended. But, but then he, he has this great uh, sentence, for the wound which is born in God's way brings a change of heart too salutary to regret. But the hurt which is born in the world's way brings death. So the two ways of dealing with the traumas, the wounds of life. The the, the one is to carry it, to bear it. We've just got to go through it to carry it, it's a heavy burden to carry, but we've got to drag it over to where it's meant to be. We bear this in God's way, and then it changes, it changes us. It brings about, in time, a change of heart. A change of heart is a, is a deep transformation of perception and awareness and, and how, we, how we are. It's not just a change of opinion or change of mind. I'm, okay, I've changed my mind, I'm going to do this or that. But it's a change of heart, so the, a change of self. We've actually been touched and transformed by carrying this wound in God's way. And then when that happens, we don't regret it. It's too salutary, too too beneficial, too healing for us to regret. And these are very, uh, this is not just, oh, I learnt a lot from that. Uh, it was very, you know, this, this, is, this is a deep opening and tr touching transformation of our inner life. Um, uh, Patricia Ng in Singapore, who died about 10 years or so ago, was diagnosed with um, stomach cancer at the age in her mid-50s and uh, was given three months to live. She actually lived for 19 months, during which time we were able to see and she was able to see a very profound change take place in her. And uh, I had a conversation with her 
shortly before she died, which is actually on YouTube. It's called From Panic to Peace. And in this uh, conversation, she said, she said, it's been a very hard year, you know, preparing for death. She knew it was going to come. She just had a, a more time. Um, she was able, actually, to see her first grandchild born, but she thought she wouldn't be able to see that. Uh, so she was being taken away in, in the prime of life and from a, a family and a marriage and a work that she loved. Um, but so she was preparing, she was grieving in advance, mourning in advance, in fact, with those she loved for the big farewell. And she was also, of course, in, in physical distress and pain at times and going through treatment. Uh, but at this point in this process, she was able to say, it's been a very hard year, but I'm so grateful for what I have learned. And I would willingly, happily, go through it again because of what I have learned. So I think this is exactly what St. Paul is saying. We don't choose these traumas or these burdens or these wounds or problems, but when they come and we have to carry them, then if we carry them in God's way, what does that mean? But if we carry them in God's way, they will bring about a transformation in us that changes the way we look at the problem in the first place. We become even grateful for it. But if we don't, if we carry it in the world's way, he says, then this um, uh, hurt, he uses the word, this hurt, will bring death. So what does, what does that mean? What's the difference between God's way and the world's way? <laughs> well, I think we can have an intuition about what that means. The, the world's way, let's say, would involve denial. That would be part of the first process of mourning, is that we deny what's happening. This can't be true. It must be a mistake. Or anger. You know, anger with the doctors, uh, anger with, the, uh, with yourself. You know, why didn't I look after myself better? Or, you know, or anger with God. You know, I didn't deserve this. Look at all these other people who deserve to suffer much more than I do. And then bargaining. These are the classic stages of, of dealing with, with a hurt of this kind. And then bargaining, you say, well, okay, all right, but if I do this, you know, maybe you'll, you'll do this for me. So we start to bargain our way out of it. So you have to go through all of these. It could take you moments, minutes, or it could take you weeks or months. It may take years in some cases. Uh, but you, go, you inevitably perhaps go through these stages of response, to the wound, the wounds of life, until it leads us to acceptance. Thy will be done. And uh, we could imagine that Jesus goes through these stages in his passion just as we will or, or have done in our own ways. And he struggles in the Garden of Gethsemane, of course, uh, resisting, doesn't deny perhaps, but perhaps the denial as part of his psychological response was just, you know, just a flash. Didn't take long to deal with that. It was one of those temptations he could dismiss instantly. Uh, humanly speaking, he would have gone through what any human being would go through, but probably went through it um, differently from, uh, from, from, uh, from, from others. 
but he went through it and came to this fundamental attitude of acceptance. And that's the beginning of transformation, acceptance. It's what we do when we meditate. We have to accept ourselves as we are in this moment. And that may mean we're in a very distracted state. Our meditation is all over the place. We don't feel uh, we're getting anywhere. You know, all sorts of reasons to, 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 to deny it, to get up, to give up, to run away from the silence and the solitude. And there's always something else we could do to justify that evasion. And there's no blame attached to that. It's not a sin or not something we have to feel guilty about. But there is another way that we have, that we can follow, which is to accept where you are, as you are, at this moment. And if we can truly accept it, and not deny or reject the reality that we're in, then this acceptance itself brings about a change. If you can really accept, at this minute when I'm meditating, I am all over the place, I'm the, really the worst meditator on Bear Island, then at that moment of true acceptance, you're somewhere else, you've moved, you've moved on. An integration has taken place, a change of heart, some degree of a change of heart happens just through acceptance. So, this is how we might uh, understand these two approaches to suffering. In God's way, which means God's, thy will be done, this acceptance. But that isn't passive, not a passive acceptance, it's a very wholehearted acceptance. Uh, or in the world's way, which means we're still kicking and screaming, denying or bargaining or getting angry. Well, we, we, we can't say that Jesus went through this or what he went through on this occasion after he'd heard the news about John the Baptist's death. We don't have that kind of information or insight into Jesus's particular psyche, except that he had a human psyche and would have essentially gone through what we all go through, though no doubt in a different way. But we can say that, that in, in, in responding to that bad news and sad news, he took the time and the space to mourn. And the space is both inner and outer. There needs to be, for mourning, some slowing down of ordinary activity. That's why we go into the desert, the inner desert, or we go away to a space, we get away. And uh, we need, we, and we respect people who are mourning, who are grieving. We respect their need for their own space, but for, for presence, for comfort, for assurance that we are thinking of them, or, or ready to be there for them if they need us. But we don't impose, we don't invade that space, their desert. One of the things about the desert is that we, we don't have to perform. We don't have to act in any particular way. And we don't look for any kind of recognition. We don't need anybody to, to admire us or approve of us. That's the freedom of the desert. And it's the freedom of meditation. 
You don't have to put on any performance for God. And if, if we do find, as we will, of course, uh, that we are putting on some kind of performance in our imagination, uh, we will see that there's only one person we're putting on the show for, and that's ourselves. And that's a bit stupid. <laughs> so you suddenly catch yourself acting out these roles, and you say, why do it? It's, it's, it's a bit ridiculous if there's nobody, nobody else there to impress. And uh, that's a great breakthrough. It's a great simplification. And it's one of the gifts of um, solitude and silence. We have to see it, catching ourselves in the mirror, acting this out, it's like catching yourself, talking to yourself. Uh, and then you can drop it. And when you drop it, you drop into a deeper identity, deeper self. And grieving or mourning uh, accompanies this. It, you know, a great loss, a great trauma in life pushes us into the state of mourning, of grief. It, 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 it pulls us into the desert in some way. Um, and it's part of this healing and part of this growth, in fact, that happens through it. One of the Desert Fathers, Abbot Poman, again says, In all our afflictions, let us weep in the presence of the goodness of God until he shows mercy to us. In all our afflictions, let us weep in the presence of God until he shows us his mercy. Well, this weeping is a recurrent theme in the spiritual literature, especially of the desert. And uh, the Greek word that which it describes it is pentos, which could be described as mourning or uh, grief or lamentation. Uh, Pentos was the, the god of, um, of lamentation for the Greeks. And uh, he was the son, as I said, of the god Ether, which is the, the highest, brightest level of uh, the sky, the firmament. And his mother was Gaia, the earth. So grief unites heaven and earth was born both of heaven and of earth. So it's, it's, a, it's, it's a, a god or a, a phenomenon that uh, integrates us and, uh, and while it purifies us, it integrates us. And the, the result of this process of grieving or mourning is that your mourning will be turned to joy. As St. James says, your mourning will be turned into joy. So there's something very uh, personal, of course, and subjective and individual about this. No one can really suffer for you. You have to go through this time of mourning or grieving in your own way and for yourself. Others can mourn with you. And uh, the, the community and the solitude are very obviously complementary in, in these times of grief or mourning or loss. Um, and that's why we have ritual, particularly here in Ireland. Uh, there are rituals associated with, with great times of loss, death and grief. Um, the, the, the keening, the sort of the ritual crying out um, done by women. Women had a special role to play in the morning rituals. There's a marvelous uh, little YouTube clip actually of women 
in Parliament Square in London who were demonstrating against nuclear weapons. And their protest was not shouting, but keening. And it's a very eerie and disturbing, uh, and, and powerful uh, sound that they create, because it's not aggressive. It is a lamentation coming out of a deep place of sadness, of loss. Uh, but it also is expressive. So anything that is expressed, however painful it may be, the expression of it is something good. It's better to express it than, to, than not to express it, if it can be expressed. If it can't be expressed, it should be left in silence. And keening, lamentation, is a, a kind of a form of silence, really. It's not ordinary words. You're not, you're not sort of explaining away the situation. You're not telling people everything will be all right. It is a pure expression of that interior pain or trauma. But in the very expression of it, there is a, he a healing. And sometimes that can be done also through, uh, through images. One of the most powerful images for us in the Western Christian culture is uh, the Pietà of Michelangelo, with many thousands of similar images of Mary uh, holding uh, the body of Jesus after it's been taken down from the cross. It doesn't need any words. You know exactly what it means and it is what it is. Uh, and it arrests us in the moment uh, to, to, to share through her grief in our own grief in the grief of humanity, in this mortality of humanity. So for the, uh, these, these early uh, teachers, the gift of pentos, the gift of, of mourning, was precisely that. It was a gift. It was an opportunity to express and to grow. And it was expressed uh, often in tears. And they spoke about the gift of tears. And the gift of tears could happen not only in times of, of, of particular grief, but say, just during your meditation. And uh, some people, I don't know many, but some people uh, experience this quite naturally. And it sometimes bothers them at first because they feel it's a bit odd that they should be sitting there in the meditation group and feel tears rolling down their cheeks, not because they're sad about anything. See, it isn't that they're, they're upset. It's just an overflow of something that they don't quite know what it is. And they don't feel bad about it. They just might feel a little embarrassed uh, or maybe need to be reassured. So, uh, and what are tears? Tears accompany mourning and grief. But tears also sometimes happen when you're, when you heard a very good joke and you can't stop laughing. It can just be sheer joy or sheer release into <laughs> just, uh, just happiness. Uh, either way, Tears express our powerlessness and that it's okay to be without power or control over events. It's a, it's a freedom, it's a sign of the freedom that comes when we can lay down the normal controlling mechanisms of the ego. And of course, when we are in that state, we are non-violent. Maybe you could 
There are people, I suppose, actors and so on, who can pretend to cry or put on the tears. But uh, when the tears are genuine and unstoppable, then they express the freedom of being non-violent, of being free from the compulsive, controlling attitudes and mechanisms of the ego. Of course, it can make us feel vulnerable, but it's a strong vulnerability, uh, a healthy vulnerability. Very close to the cross, which is the great symbol of the coming days, the cross is seen as a kenosis, as an emptying that corresponds to the great emptying of the Incarnation. So the beginning of the story of Jesus begins with his taking flesh, Incarnation, in the womb, in the birth of Jesus. And this is seen theologically, if we really penetrate into the meaning of Jesus, as God's self-emptying something we can hardly imagine, well, we can't imagine, and something which, which seems uh, inexpressible. But the logic of it, or the sense of it, is that God emptied himself. And this emptying produced the, the Incarnation. So this uh, begins the story which culminates in the great emptying of the cross. The self-emptying of Jesus humanly, beginning as the divine emptying, but that S divine self-emptying takes flesh in Jesus and then Jesus continues that and teaches us what, who we are and what it means to be human through his own self-emptying which culminates in his death. And we might say, you know, at the beginning you have the tears of joy and at the cross we, we shed the tears of loss. But in both, there is, there is the revelation of a wholeness of life. And we can't touch that wholeness, that integrity of life, the meaning of life, which brings the, our birth and our death into one uh, reality. We can't touch that, we can't know that, unless in the process we have learned how to mourn, how to let go, and how to grow through that letting go. So the saying of, one of the sayings of Jesus from the cross, the seven sayings we've been looking at, uh, touches this very uh, closely today, and it's where uh, Jesus in the Gospel of John is um, on the cross in his last moments. And uh, it's described in this way. Meanwhile, near the cross where Jesus hung stood his mother with her sister, Mary, wife of Clopas, and Mary of Magdala. Jesus saw his mother with the disciple whom he loved standing beside her. He said to her, Mother, there is your son. And to the disciple, there is your mother. And from that moment, the disciple took her 
into his house. So very few words without explanation. Uh, and maybe we don't need to explain them because they speak really for themselves. But after meditation, we could, we could reflect on them. Okay, let's take a moment again to um, prepare. If you want to have a little stretch. So when we're physically uh, comfortable and relaxed and cleared your throat and blown your nose, we can <coughs> take a few moments to be aware of your breathing, which helps to take us out of our head, let go of our thoughts, a little mindful exercise that prepares us for meditation. And then gently introduce your word, your mantra. Begin repeating it gently, faithfully, and simply, and continuously. Listen to the word as you say it. your physical stillness help you to come into a stillness of mind and attention. And stay with the word. <coughs> 